I'm very excited to share this recording with you guys, which happened at our conference, sasopen.com, with over 100 speakers, all founders of B2B SaaS companies. We have a very high bar for what speakers share on stage, so you're going to enjoy this episode where we dive deep into revenue graphs, real tactics, and real growth metrics. You are listening to Conversations with Nathan Latka, where I sit down and interview the top SaaS founders, like Eric Wan from Zoom. If you'd like to subscribe, go to gitlatka.com. We've published thousands of these interviews, and if you want to sort through them quickly by revenue or churn, CAC, valuation, or other metrics, the easiest way to do that is to go to gitlatka.com and use our filtering tool. It's like a big Excel sheet for all of these podcast interviews. Check it out right now at gitlatka.com. So right at um, 4 o'clock, it's hard to have much empathy. You just want a coffee and a snack and not talk about, um, not talk, not talk about ideas. But um, it's great to be here. It's awesome to see founders sharing ideas, sharing insights from each other. There's no one playbook that works. So I think the best ideas that always happen are out of spontaneous interactions like this. I'm going to talk in this uh, presentation about customer empathy, understanding customer and how it could lead to 10x in the company and share some stories that um, we learned as we scaled security scorecard. So let me actually first tell you how the company got started. So about 11 years ago, I was a chief security officer in an e-commerce startup called Guild Group. I'm a security guy. I kind of alternate between building things and breaking things. So I just hired for this rapidly growing e-commerce fashion startup, which was going from a few hundred people to 2,000 people in just a couple of years as a first chief security officer, where I was overseeing security of millions of customers. And um, right around month three, Kevin Ryan who's the founder of Guild Group, Business Insider, MongoDB. He was my boss. Now he's a friend and an investor into a startup. He sends me a message and says, Alex, I'd like you to come in and present to me what you're doing to make security for Guild. And I felt, I felt great. I prepared this elaborate deck talking about people I was going to hire. I talked to him about the fact that I deployed Akamai Prolexic for sin flood mitigation on the production network. So I shared this elaborate technical deck with me, and I thought, I got it covered. It's going to be a great meeting. I walk in. He starts flipping through the slides in a printout out of sequence, completely ruins the frame of a conversation, looks at me and says, you're not doing a good job. And I was confused. Like, how am I not doing a good job? Like, look at all the things that I put together. And Kevin's response was, I don't hear enough people complaining about you. If you were making enough difference as a chief security officer, I'd hear more people complaining about you. So I took the advice to heart, and a lot of people complained about me, but we made a difference. Uh, but that was actually the inspiration for Security Scorecard, because I realized about nine years ago that security is the only industry where you have no KPIs. You drive a car, you have a speedometer showing to you how fast you drive. You go to a doctor, they measure your blood pressure. You look at a SaaS company, you have all kinds of metrics. LTV to CAC, magic number, rule of 40. In cybersecurity, we're at zero. I mean, if you invested a million dollars into the latest, greatest technology, 
And you ask, did I become 1% safer, 2% safer, 10% safer? Nobody could tell you. And furthermore, as we all became interconnected to each other, the problem got even worse because you could be doing a good job. Then you send your paperwork to an outside law firm. The law firm gets hacked and all of a sudden your sensitive information is out in the open. So as we all became interconnected, actually 65% of data breaches today happen due to negligence of third parties, which are not even within your control. You could use a marketing software, an HR software, then they get hacked and you're in trouble. For example, just out of curiosity, how many people heard of a Fuzzio data breach by raise of hands? Okay, one person, target data breach? Target, got hacked, no? So Fuzzio was a small air conditioning company that serviced Target and the hackers broke into it and then they got into Target. So nine years ago, we had this dream and the dream was, why can't there be security score? Just like you have credit scores, why can't you pick up data points non-intrusively from outside for any company in the world and reduce those data points to a score? Easier said than done because at the moment, market did not exist. When we went and knocked on the door of prospective customers, we got a lukewarm reception, which was a very important lesson for me at the time. When you start in a company, if the idea is obvious to everybody, you're actually too late to the game. So you got to time it properly. And fast forward into today, nine years later, we're about 600 employees used by thousands of companies worldwide, nine of the top 10 pharmaceuticals, banks, all of the top insurance companies uh, using us. We exceeded a hundred million run rate last year and we're gonna probably grow by at least 50% this year. So fast forward into today. So the question is, where did we go right and where did we go wrong? How much of it was good decisions, bad decisions? And you know, we did a lot of um, reflection. We did a lot of reflection and thought, where did we go right, where did we go wrong as we scaled the company from two people, me and my business partner, zero dollars in revenue, staring at each other in a co-working space to, you know, customers in over 46 countries uh, today and employees all over the world. So the interesting part is that the ideas that we thought were good actually ended up being bad and the ideas that we thought were bad or like maybe we didn't put a lot of attention to it, they actually ended up being good. And like you don't quite know what's a good idea, what's a bad idea, because if you knew it, you would have already done it. So to share two examples. On the right, you see this bridge multiplier where in 2015, I got super excited, I'm an engineer, so I had this idea that you can use a way to compute a likelihood of two portfolios to be too similar. Just like you can have all houses located in a flood zone, and if all houses are in the same neighborhood, they can all get flooded because they're in a proximity to each other. If you have all of your suppliers using GoDaddy, for example, to host themselves, or all of them are using HubSpot, and then HubSpot becomes like this single point of failure, so how do you compute similarity between the two portfolios? So we came up with a very clever idea to use Kolmogorov Smirnov complexity to compute the difference between portfolios. We spent four months, 10-person team working on it for four months, millions of dollars, total flop. I was the only person in the company who knew how to pitch it. My sales guys couldn't understand it, didn't do anything. On the flip side, back in 2015, right around the same time on a weekend, one of my developers called Josh, he, uh, he looked at a website and said, why don't I just take the scores that you guys compute and write a small widget 
and just put it on a website and anybody who can go get request a score can go type the email, we send a score and then we bombard them with marketing messages and it becomes a lead, a warm lead. And nobody asked him to do it, didn't come from me. He just went and coded it on a weekend and um, became a number one lead generation tool, actually even today. And Josh is now actually a founder and a CEO of our customer success startup, uh, about 20 people now. I'm an angel investor. The reason I put my money in him is because you bet on people who take a risk. You bet on people who are dreamers, risk takers, have a healthy dose of disregard for the impossible. So what does it tell us though, right? Like what do these two lessons tell us? So they tell us that most organizations overvalue great ideas and that cheap, quick experimentation outweighs great ideas every single time. And you need to build a culture for people to really innovate because a lot of the time, especially as companies grow, people are going to say, oh, I got this two-month project to build a marketing campaign or website, or it's going to take me a month to ship a feature. And then you do it and you don't even know if it works 90% of the time. You think it does, but then at the end it doesn't. So I'm a huge fan of this 5x5x5 five by five by five framework by Mike Schrag, who is an advisor and a friend, professor at Harvard. But he came up with this framework and said, imagine you have five people, five days, $5,000, and it's an artificial constraint, and constraints breed creativity. And you say, okay, like, come up with an experiment and test a hypothesis. So for example, if somebody comes to you and says, it's gonna take me two months to build a website. I'm like, how do you do it in 10 minutes? They look at me like, I'm crazy. I'm like, well, you gotta think crazy, think creative. Don't think linearly, think non-linearly. What about you just putting up a picture in a landing page and seeing how many people click on it? But this is very important for the culture of a company that helped us iterate. Number one. Number two, have people heard of a framework called Jobs to be Done? Yeah, so that's a hugely important framework for product development. People do not buy products and services. They hire them to get jobs done in their lives. Jobs are problems that your customers do. So at the end of the day, every startup is there to help people do a job. And it's very easy to get fixated on features, operational metrics, but you need to zoom out and say, what are the jobs that your customers who are paying you money are actually doing, and how is your product, your company helping them solve it? It's a really good book. Like, get that book. I have zero affiliation with a book, but I still love the book, Secret Lives of Customers, a very good book. And so in that book, it poses a question why do you hire a cup of coffee? You go to a local coffee shop and you hire a cup of coffee, right? You pay money, so you hired a cup of coffee to do a particular job. Why do you do it? Who can tell me? Just shout out the answers. Caffeine, you want to get caffeine? Anybody else? Experience of a coffee? Take a break, socialize? Okay, good, good. So the answer is it's not just caffeine. If you run in a coffee shop and you're competing, then if you think that the only reason people go to you is to have a coffee, then you're going to compete on quality of coffee, variety of beans that you have, that type of stuff. Maybe you're going to add some sandwiches, snacks, but you're missing the point that the job to be done to hire a cup of coffee is totally different. So I listed my jobs of why I hire a cup of coffee over the past couple of years. Sometimes I want to go meet a friend and have an informal chat somewhere outside of my house. I used to compete in chess back in college. I'm pretty good. So I would meet local chess players at five o'clock on a Friday because they would congregate there. I wanted to feel alert before I would go to a workout. Every single morning I would commute into a city, go get a coffee, draft my day, and just that's my routine. 
I worked on my PhD dissertation back in college. I lived in a small, tiny studio, was uncomfortable, faced a brick wall. I wanted to be around people, but not talking to people while I'm writing this dissertation. So there's a lot of jobs to be done. But when you compete on those jobs, all of a sudden, your coffee shop no longer competes on the quality of beans, but you might be competing with WeWork on what type of ambience you create. You might be competing with social meetup groups by congregating people. So it really expands how you think. So if you adopt a product-centric lens, which by the way, we as a company often are very guilty of, you start saying a product-centric lens is you compete on a quality of coffee, you get a cup of coffee. But a job-centric lens, you start thinking, how do you create an experience in your coffee shop to have an informal chat, get work done on the go? If I apply it to what we do, we've recently released a module called Cyber Risk Quantification where you can quantify in dollar terms how much your risk exposure is. If you adopt a product-centric lens, you're going to say, oh, it shows this dollar is exposure. But if you adopt a job-centric lens, why would somebody pay money for it? Well, they might be trying to justify a budget to convince people that we'll lose this much money, so I need an investment. Or you might show to the board that you're doing a good job. So you expand your horizon when you think that way. Now, customers pay you exactly proportionate to the value you bring, which means the pain you alleviate versus alternate solutions. A lot of startups underestimate it, but this is the trick. A lot of the time you might not be getting traction in a startup, but the point is you have a customer, he has a set of circumstances and a certain amount of pain, inefficiencies. You might be standing outside in a rain trying to look for a taxi, it's not there. That's a certain amount of pain. So Uber and Lyft recognize the pain where you can now just click a button and order a car without looking for a taxi and it's tied to your credit card. And it was a big enough pain where it became a big successful company. Similarly, a lot of the time, people underestimate how valuable their solution is, right? Like, I mean, I think if you're under 10 million in ARR, you actually probably did not reach your product market fit yet. Like you need to work with the industry to try to cross the chasm and try to really understand deeply how do you become a drug and not a vitamin because drugs are must have, vitamins are nice to have. How do you become indispensable and embedded into your customer life cycle? And to do it, you have three types of approaches, right? One approach is you become a system of record like Salesforce where it's almost impossible to rip it out. A second approach is you become a company where you have a lot of integrations like Zendesk. It's easier to rip it out, but you integrate it into the workflows. And a third, you could become a company like Gainsight or some other companies where much easier to rip it out, but they created a great brand, great community, people like it, so you create the stickiness to your solution. And you need to talk to your unhappiest customers. That's your secret of how to scale your company. Talk to your unhappiest, most pissed off customers. They'll tell you the secret. And so the deadliest competition is actually not competitors and not your adjacent solutions, but it's doing nothing. That's the deadliest competitor that you face. And it's a very hard competitor to fight with because before you came along, people survived, you know, things were happening. So why is it that now your startup or your company is around, why do they really need to have it? So that's a very important kind of point to focus on. And the next part is, as you scale the company, 
the values are not what you put on a wall or what you say it is, but it's the behaviors, the positive and the negative behaviors that you embody. So it's very crucial to create a customer-obsessed culture. And customer is always a number one priority. We hire, we fire, and we promote based on this. I parted ways with an executive who was a smart, talented executive um, about a month ago, and it caused a big turnover in a team. I asked her, how many customers have you talked to? She showed the calendar, not many. I said, okay, next week when I talk to you, I need to see you talk to customers. Wasn't happening, so we moved to a different role. Didn't work out, so... But you have to do what you say. If customers are your number one thing, do what you say. Reward, promote, and fire based on those things. We start every executive meeting with a 20-minute recap of customer stories before we talk about anything else. Updates, OKRs, KPIs, roadblocks. We start by talking for 20 minutes about stories from the market, bad and good. That means that we put customer first. We invite customers to talk to our town halls. We share stories. We do calendar audits to make sure that people are mixing those activities. Every executive is mandated to talk to customers. It's not an option. And then Amazon has a very famous expression, the most important chair is an empty chair in the room representing the customer. That's the most important thing. Is the stuff that we're talking about actually going to benefit the customer? The last part I'm going to mention is you also want to take your customers on a journey and understand who are your customers, who are your customers' customers. If you're a retail customer, who do they sell to? If you're a cruise line, who do they sell to? And then you want your company to transform your customers. Mike Schrag, again, talks about this quite a bit. And he said the Facebook innovation was the fact that it asked its users to share more openly even if they were introverts. They did not do it before. It's easy to talk about Henry Ford and people say, oh, Henry Ford's idea was a mass assembly line or producing uh, the Model T at scale. But in reality, it wasn't actually that. He recognized that a transformation is possible when people didn't make enough money to buy an automobile, so he raised the salaries. He envisioned that people are going to travel longer on a weekend when they didn't travel. The roads weren't paved. There were no bridges, no infrastructure. But he envisioned this transformation. Google transformed us into people who don't hesitate for a second to type an ill-defined query into Google and believe the results. That was a transformation of the customers. And that's how you take your customers on a journey. And similarly, we transformed our customers into people who don't hesitate for a second to use our scores to decide whether somebody is trustworthy to do business with. So that's some tips and advice. You're never done. You never achieve the milestone, you always have to work on it and continuously get out of bed and think about how you evolve. But those are some of the things that worked for us. And as I mentioned, this quote by Bill Gates is very relevant. Your most unhappy customers are your greatest source of learning. And so that's my email. If you guys have any questions, reach out and I think I'll also be hanging out a bit. But um, thank you very much.